Welcome to another episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. It's Monday, June 21st. My kids are at summer camp, and Democrats hope to soon get moving on President Joe Biden's massive infrastructure spending plans that wouldn't have been possible without the party winning the White House and the Senate in 2020. But the last election wasn't all rosy for Democrats, and a new internal party report looked into why that was. Joining us today to discuss the report and what it means for 2022 is Congressman Brad Schneider, an Illinois Democrat and a leader of the party's largest ideological House caucus. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Thank you, Kyle. On every episode of Down Ballot Counts, I introduce a notable political statistic that I lovingly call Jero's Gem. In this episode's Jero's Gem is 21. That's how many jurisdictions used ranked choice voting in their most recent elections as of May 2021, according to the nonpartisan organization Fair Vote. Ranked choice voting is the practice of allowing voters to rank candidates by preference instead of voting for just one person. If a race with three or more candidates doesn't produce a majority vote winner on the first ballot, the candidate with the fewest votes is eliminated, and the voters who ranked that candidate first, or number one, will have their votes count for their next preference, their number two ranked candidate. This process, which simulates an instant runoff election, is repeated until there is a majority vote winner. Let's say, for example, that I am a candidate for dog catcher in a three-person race that includes you, Kyle, and our producer, David Schultz. Let's say that Kyle got 45% of the vote, David got 40%, and I got 15% of the vote. No one won a majority, and as the lowest-performing candidate, sadly, I would be eliminated. To determine the victor, we would need to look at who my voters ranked second. If most of them ranked Kyle second, then he would win the election because he led David in the initial vote and he would make a net gain in that second round retabulation. But let's say that everyone who voted for me ranked David second. Then he would leapfrog Kyle and win the election 55% to 45% in that simulated second round instant runoff. Jurisdictions that use ranked choice voting now include New York City, where the Democratic primary for mayor on Tuesday includes 13 candidates seeking to lead the most populous U.S. city. It seems clear that none of the 13 will win a majority and that the ranked choice voting rules will be invoked. Maine was the first state to use ranked choice voting for statewide races, including general elections for Congress starting in 2018, when Democrat Jared Golden unseated Republican Bruce Poliquin in a contest that included two other candidates. Ranked choice voting will be used in the 2022 U.S. Senate race in Alaska, where incumbent Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is seeking re-election and already faces challengers on her right and on her left. And that's your Jero's Gem for this episode of Down Ballot Counts. All right. I feel smarter already. Thanks, Greg. Uh, Up next, we're talking with Congressman Brad Schneider. Joining us now is Congressman Brad Schneider chair of the New Dem Action Fund, which is the political arm of the New Democrat Coalition. Congressman, thanks for coming on Down Ballot Counts. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
So the New York Times broke the story on this new report that looked into why the party didn't do better in 2020. And I want to just start by asking what role, if any, did the New Dems play in that report? And, and what are your top line takeaways from this dissection of the last election? Thanks for the question. And I'm going to start with uh, maybe a little bit of background. Uh, after, after the 2020 election, um, we looked around and, and we held the majority, which was the most important goal we, we had, but the Democrats held the majority. Uh, but we also lost a number of really outstanding members. In fact, 12 uh, wonderful members in, in the race. And we want to understand uh, what happened in the 2020 election. What lessons could be learned? Uh, where did we do things well? But also, where did we uh, do things less well and, and need to improve to have a uh, success and even greater success in, in 2022. So uh, the New Dems, along with a, a, num a number of other groups, including Third Way, worked with a company called 270 Strategies and outlined a, what we call a retrospective. We want to really understand what happened in the 2020 election and what lessons are important to take away from it and, and, and did a, a very extensive um, review of, of the election, looking at the, at the races where uh, we succeeded in, in races where we uh, uh, lost some, some great members. And, and from that, we learned a number of, of critical lessons. Uh, among those is that uh, the New Dems, who represent the, the largest of the ideological caucus, we were at 105 in the last Congress, we're at 95 today, uh, have a message that resonates uh, in the um, center of America, not necessarily just the center of the country, but across the, the country in the center of the spectrum. Uh, that we need to make sure we are communicating that message, but also addressing the attacks that are coming at us. For example, uh, the arguments, uh, the, the, the broad brush painting of Democrats as uh, police hating socialists, uh, we need to respond to that, that, uh, you know, of, of course, we support the police and we want to have safe communities and we're going to grow our economy and create opportunities. And that's what the new Dem message is. And that message can resonate, but it can't it can't ignore the attacks that are coming at us. And I guess the other big takeaway, and we can talk more about this, is that um, as we look across the country, uh, with uh, even within different demographics, different geographies, we need to be working very hard to reach out to people during the entire two-year cycle, uh, not counting on certain groups to for just uh, get out the vote. Uh, for example, Latino or African-American voters, we've got to be communicating with them, uh, understanding that there is a, a diversity of opinion, a diversity of, of uh, views within, within every group. We've got to connect with them, build those relationships and work to bring them out to vote come election day. Yeah. And, and to that end, part of the focus of the report um, kind of stemmed from the party's branding toward working class voters of all races. Um, and that's partly related to, uh, you know, as you said, Republican messaging in 2020. But uh, is there hope that these spending packages that your party wants to pass right now will will help clarify for voters where the party stands, uh, you know, come next year? I, I think look, we have to deliver results. But uh, as other people have said more times than I have, show me your budgets and I'll show you your values. Uh, where you make your investments reflect on what's important to you. What are your priorities? And uh, I think, uh, again, you, you look at the, the vast majority of people in this country, their priorities are taking care of their families, making sure that they have opportunities to um, uh, succeed in life, put a roof over their head, provide education, health care to their kids, uh, secure retirement that will give them uh, dignity uh, in, in their later years. And those are the things we're investing in. Today is uh, Child Tax Credit Day. Um, the Congress and the uh, American Rescue Plan passed a, uh, a monthly refundable tax child tax credit, which means that we're going to lift half the kids living in poverty today. Beginning next month, when those checks started going out, will be lifted out of poverty and have the opportunities not just to su succeed for themselves, 
but to improve and enhance the prospects for our country. As you alluded to, uh, one finding from the report was that Republican portrayals of Democrats as radicals uh, worked in a number of districts. Uh, you mentioned the defund the police attack, but also there were attacks of you know, socialism, you know, attacks on Medicare for all, the Green New Deal. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, Democrats cannot ignore the attacks. How should Democrats respond more forcefully and effectively to those criticisms? I, I think it's uh, being straightforward and taking them on. Talk about what our, our values are, that we do believe that we need to have secure communities, that we're going to invest in those communities. But communities where the residents and the police trust each other and have a relationship connecting with each other. And part of that's resources. It's not taking money out of our police departments, but it's making sure that our police departments have the resources to do policing. And that we're not calling on our police uh, departments uh, to be doing so many of the other things, you know, being experts in uh, psychology, experts in other things, that we're investing in those parts of the community as well. That the Democrats are the ones who are not just investing in, um, you know, public safety, but investing in infrastructure, making sure we're lifting up our communities, increasing the opportunities uh, for folks to pursue and achieve their dreams. That the, the Democrats are the ones who understand that education is the gateway for everything that we want to do. And we're making sure that every child's gonna have a quality education no matter where they live, what zip code they're born into. And that that education carries them. You know, the, one of the things that pulled me off the, the uh, sofa this year since we weren't in session when um, President Biden addressed Congress, when he talked about two years extra education, early education and two years community college, those are the things and the investments of people that are gonna change the, the, the course of the country. And those are the things that we have to focus on. Everyone in this country, virtually everyone in this country, wants to know that their future prospects are better than what they had yesterday, and that the sacrifices parents are making today for the children are gonna be as worthy as what their parents and grandparents made for them a generation ago. And according to a media consultant quoted in the report, uh, Republicans reached voters at an emotional level and Democrats at an intellectual level. Um, if you agree with that, uh, what can Democrats do to reach voters, you know, kind of at the gut level, more emotionally, more viscerally? Great question. I talked about a little bit is this idea that we need to be connecting with our voters every day over the, over the course of a two-year cycle, right? that we need to be talking to them and, and hearing them. Um, and I'll talk about New Dem members. New Dem members are, are, are great at this. They're, they're out having town halls. Uh, we talk about um, and folks who are, are doing town halls, town halls in every county or township in their district over the course of the year. Obviously, the pandemic made that more difficult. But uh, from my own experience, I can tell you when I have the chance to talk to voters face to face to hear their concerns, we may not agree with each other. But if there's an appreciation that I am hearing what people are talking about, and I'm not just talking about me, I'm talking about all my colleagues and that we are focused on addressing those challenges and working together. Uh, then I, I think you start to make that emotional connection. And, and what I tell so many of my colleagues is the attacks are going to come. That's the nature of politics. And uh, we're seeing those attacks getting more personal and, and more heated uh, in recent years. But if you have that connection, that emotional connection with your voters, uh, then you can weather those storms. And, and if you're serving your constituents, if you're taking care of their needs, if you're speaking to their values and priorities, then your likelihood of coming back is going to be that much greater. And you mentioned uh, new Dems. Uh, could you, for the benefit of our listeners, could you describe like what is a new Democrat? What is the New Democrat Action Fund? And you know what distinguishes Democrats who are new Dems from those who are not? Sure. Uh, technically, it's the New Democrat Coalition, and these are um, uh, oftentimes you say moderate, but, but these are, are more of the the um, I say moderates a style more than a position. These are these are Democrats who are committed to working together, 
I, I tell the story a lot of the difference between the idealist and the pragmatist. The idealist says, I will not move one inch until I get everything I want. The pragmatist says, I don't have time to wait to make the progress we need to tackle our problems and move forward. And I think that's the new Democrat coalition. We're the members who are saying, let's figure out a way to work together uh, to address the challenges we face in the, as a country, but also to touch on the opportunities to make sure that we are, are moving the country forward. New Dems are the largest group. Uh, as I mentioned, we're 105. We were 105 in the last Congress. We lost um, uh, 12. We picked up two new members. Uh, critical uh, for us to continue to, to, to grow and expand because we're the ones who make the majority for the Democratic Party. Uh, in uh, 2018, uh, the Democrats picked up 40 seats to win the majority. 32 of those were, were new Democrat um, members. Uh, they're the ones who I think appeal to that core uh, of the electorate in those swing districts that uh, draw the votes and, and, and hopefully in, ensure the Democrats uh, maintain and grow our majority. Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of the majority, Republicans have the edge in redistricting this year. And obviously they have the edge given the historical trends of the party out of power gaining seats. What's the mood like when you're discussing your party's chances of holding the majority next year, when you're, when you're talking with your fellow Democrats in Congress or with political consultants and operatives? Is there a hope that you that you guys can actually hold on, given all the, the headwinds? Yeah, sure. There's absolutely hope, and it's more than hope. We're very focused. We Again, this was the whole thing with the retrospective, looking back at 2020 to understand what we need to do to, to win in 2022. We know it's not going to be easy. We know there are a lot of headwinds uh, working against us, uh, but uh, history doesn't determine the future. And uh, if if we, as the, the New Democrat Coalition, if the New Dems continue to focus on what matters most to the American public, uh, then we'll continue to, to hopefully draw their support and, and, and hold our seats. So uh, it's very much a focus. It's very much a, a business-like attitude of rolling up our sleeves. And just making sure we're, we're accomplishing things. Uh, that's why you see so many new Dems involved in the conversations, whether it's uh, about infrastructure, the child tax credit, as I said earlier, you know, today's child uh, tax credit today. Susan Del Benny, the uh, chair of the, of the New Dem Coalition uh, this term, uh, this was her bill with Rosa DeLauro. The two of them were the champions. Um, that's a, a new Dem priority is, is the child tax credit. But also making sure that we're helping our small businesses uh, you know, get pick themselves up after the pandemic. Uh, get on the road to recovery and ultimate to, to, to prosperity because our small businesses are, are the, the heartbeat of our small and local communities. And if we succeed with small business, then we're going to see more success across the country. These are some of the things that we'll be focused on. And, and we know if we do that, well, we have a good shot at winning uh, next year. When you mentioned that the importance of speaking to uh, voters for the entire two-year cycle, could you elaborate on that? Like what, uh, what kind of communications need to occur? Should Democrats uh, change how they communicate to voters? Yeah, in, in elections, and uh, even though I've been doing this now for a decade, I'm certainly not an expert, but uh, the experts divide folks into two categories, uh, persuasion voters and turnout voters. And the idea is you don't need to talk to your turnout voters. You have limited resources. Talk to your turnout voters the three weeks before an election uh, so they make sure they go in and, and they, they cast their ballot. And and spend your resources during the, the course of the year, the two years, on the persuasion voters. I think what we have to understand is that everybody's a pers persuasion voter today. Uh, no one is uh, just going to say, whatever you want, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I'm, I'm headed to the polls. They say, I want to know that you're working for me. So we need to talk to every community. I'll use my district as, as, as an example. I have a fairly uh, diverse district. It's the northern suburbs of Chicago. Uh, but it, uh, you know, from an economic, economic standpoint, we have affluent communities, but we have struggling communities. Uh, we have communities that are... Um, uh, 
so majority uh, Latino. I have uh, areas where we have uh, large concentrations of African American. I have a large uh, uh, Asian Pacific Islander population. You know, by the time you add it all up, uh, it's about a 50-50 minority versus white district. I can't assume any of those people are, are just going to come out and vote for me. I can't assume, you know, if I talk to this group about immigration once or twice during the year, I'm going to be fine. What I have to do is talk to every one of those groups all year round. And uh, sometimes I'm going to be talking to them about education issues. Sometimes it's going to be about business issues. Sometimes it's going to be about infrastructure. And, and certainly it's going to be about immigration. All of these are issues that we're talking about. And I have to convince those voters, and when I say me, I'm talking about every one of my colleagues have to convince our voters that we understand their priorities, we understand their concerns, we understand what they value most, and that's what we're working hardest on in Washington. And uh, I describe this as the longest uh, job interview I ever had, and I get to have it every two years. Um, we've got to be out interviewing for this job every two years, demonstrating that uh, uh, we're getting the job done. I was wondering if you could take us under the dome. It, it seems like the tensions are really heightened right now. And um, I know you considered a, a censure resolution um, against uh, Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, she's gotten into um, verbal altercations in the hallways with Democratic members. It just seems like the tensions are really high right now in the House. What's it like to legislate there? What's it like going to work under the dome? Uh, on one hand, it's it's very tense. You, you're absolutely right. There's this sense that uh, uh, the other side isn't just coming from a different place. They're wrong, and not only are they wrong, they're evil. And you end up in that dynamic, it's impossible to get anything done. Uh, I have always preached, I taught my kids this lesson, it's how I approached my job before Congress and everything I've been in Congress. I don't have to prove you wrong to be confident in what I believe, but I'm not so certain in anything I know not to listen to what you have to say and maybe learn something. And if we're open-minded and we're sharing ideas and we're committed to solving our problems together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. And so that's that's my approach. It's the approach of, it's a new Dem approach. It's why I came to the new Dems in the first place. And um, it's it's how I think we're going to get things done. Uh, I did introduce uh, a resolution to um, uh, uh, censure Marjorie Taylor Greene for her comments uh, equating the U.S. response to COVID to the Holocaust. Uh, she later went to the Holocaust Museum and, uh, and uh, afterwards spoke uh, about what she had said and apologized for it. And so uh, we withdrew that uh, resolution for now. I've, I've also criticized people in my own party, including most recently Ilhan Omar, uh, for making uh, false equivalencies that uh, uh, didn't serve any of us. Uh, we've got to, again, I'll talk about that center, the, the where most people live, we've got to meet them there and talk to each other, respect to each other, respect each other. We don't have to agree, but it's in those disagreements, how can we find compromise that moves us forward rather than polarize and uh, move us apart. All right. Um, well, I think we're out of time, so we'll, we'll leave it there for now. And Congressman, uh, we just we really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and join Down Ballot Counts. Great. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Have a, a great week and uh, wishing you a, a good and healthy summer. Thank you. You too. This is Down Ballot Counts. Before we close the show, we've got a parting trivia shot I'll attempt to answer on the spot. That's right, it's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each episode, I try to stump Kyle and you, our listeners, with a political trivia question. Kyle's been on a little bit of a hot streak, so let's see if I can end his winning streak today. So I want to ask about how many current House members have non-consecutive House service. That is, members of the House who you know served for some time, then left Congress, then returned to Congress. 
And Kyle, while you ponder that, I want to note for our listeners that on the program we interviewed Illinois Democratic Congressman Brad Schneider, who is among that specific number of current House members who have served non-consecutive tenures. Schneider was first elected to Congress in 2012, lost his seat in 2014, then reclaimed it in the 2016 election, and was re-elected in 2018 and 2020. And the trivia question is, including Brad Schneider, how many current House members have non-consecutive House service? And because I'm such a nice guy and it's not an easy question, I'm going to give uh, Kyle and our listeners four choices. And those four choices are 5, 10, 15, or 20. So Kyle, 5, 10, 15, or 20, how many current House members, including Brad Schneider, have non-consecutive House service? I'm going to go five because I can't think of that many names. I can think of Daryl Issa and Pete Sessions, maybe the most recent. Uh, and I know there's one in Ohio. Um, so I've got three. So I'm going with five. Okay. It turns out there are actually 15 of them. It's, wow. more than, it's even more than I would have anticipated. But I have the list of 15 here. I'll roll through them very, very quickly. Uh, Democrat Ed Case of Hawaii. Republican Steve Shabbat of Ohio, Tennessee Democrat Jim Cooper, Illinois Democrat Bill Foster, Nevada Democrat Stephen Horsford, California Republican Daryl Issa, as you mentioned, Kyle, Arizona Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick, Maryland Democrat Kwesi Mfume, North Carolina Democrat David Price, Brad Schneider of Illinois, who we interviewed on the show earlier in the episode, Texas Republican Pete Sessions, New York Republican Claudia Tenney, Nevada Democrat Dina Titus, California Republican David Valadeo, and Michigan Republican Tim Wahlberg. Those are your 15 right there. Uh, so yeah, quite a large uh, contingent of House members who have served uh, two, uh, two non-consecutive tenures there, Kyle, 15 in total. And of course, in my head, as you take off every name, I'm saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, that guy, that, that woman. Oh, well. all right. Well, that's it for us today. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020 before endorsing Joe Biden. Down Ballot Counts was produced by David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you soon. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.